Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. We are in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to chapter 8. And we will stand in a moment and take verses 27 through 38. Would you please stand? If you are joining us online, we encourage you to stand there. And those of you in the lobby also, we encourage you to stand. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do, you, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Please be seated. What Say You? That's the title of this morning's message. And we go right to verse 27. There being a lot of material here. Now, Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? This Caesarea Philippi to the north in Israel's territory. In fact, this is the northernmost limit of our Lord's travels recorded in the scriptures, about 20, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And we are about eight days or so away from the transfiguration. We'll get that in the next chapter. And if you don't know what the transfiguration is, uh, what's meant by that, then we'll see you here next week. It says here, on the road, but that's not while they were walking and talking, uh, Luke tells us, and it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, who do the crowd say that I am? And so on the way up towards uh, Caesarea Philippi, these events are taking place, and there was the Lord praying. And I would imagine the disciples sort of like little children, getting a little restless, how long is he going to take? And so they just sort of interrupt him. It says here in verse 27, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? That is the third time I've read that phrase this morning. And it is, of course, uh, one of the most, if not the most significant question ever asked a human being. The Father tells us what his view is, which is the one that counts. This is my beloved son. So that's what the Father knows about Jesus the Christ, but this most important question of all, Mark is careful to deal with it, the first verse of the gospel, of, according to Mark, and there we read in Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, if he is God, the Son of God, he is God the Son. He is divine. You cannot say it in this context like this about anybody else that has ever been. It is exclusive to Jesus Christ. We're disliked for this. They'll just have to dislike us because the truth stands for what it is and we accept it and this is what makes the distinction between the true believer 
and a false one or an unbeliever. The Lord wanted to hear his disciples voice their opinion on this matter. Who are people saying that I am? He continues in verse 28. So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others one of the prophets. Guessing about Jesus Christ has never gone out of style. It is here to this day. And we are supposed to be part of the processes of God in making sure people don't have to guess about him. That we inform them who he is according to the scriptures. Well, many felt that John the Baptist was Elijah. And John the Baptist, of course, declined that. He did, I'm not, or should I say disclaimed it. He said, I'm not John the Baptist. Some transferred their identification from John the Baptist and said, well, Jesus must now be John the Baptist. Uh, this kind of thinking crept into the Jewish thinking because there were those that were writing these mythological things about uh, Jewish religion, and many people were picking it up. Well, we have that today. We have people writing books that are kooky, and many people picking them up and reading them and then treating it as though this is the gospel, as though, as though it is truth. And so when you step away from the scriptures, well, when you're in the scripture, you have to be careful. You step away and read other materials, you have to be careful also. You have to make sure those authors, their doctrine is consistent with what the doctrine of the Bible is. It says here in verse 28, and others, one of the prophets, some of the, the other people, some are saying, well, you're Elijah. Some say you are uh, John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're somebody else, any of the other prophets. Well, Elijah particularly falls into this group because Elijah is the prophet that never died, the Jewish prophet that never died. And according to Malachi's um, prophecy in chapter 4, Elijah will return in the last days. And so you could see where they would make that connection, but you, you cannot see how they could stand by it. The writings that were coming up at this time at one point had even said that Jeremiah and Isaiah would come and help Ezra. This was back in the days of Ezra. Again, these are mythological writings of the Jews, but they, they sort of gained some momentum amongst the people and crept into their thinking. And this is what caused the rumor mill about Jesus Christ to produce these wrong ideas. The prophets were prominent in Scripture, and they are prominent to us. They have never been preeminent. They would never uh, accept that uh, they were. They were very quick to exalt Yahweh. And so here, as uh, these disciples are telling Christ what everybody is saying about him, they are bringing up these prominent people, but the people are failing to understand that he, Jesus, is preeminent, self-existent. The Messiah is self-existent because he's the Son of God. He is God the Son. Without parallel, amongst all created beings, angels, spiritual beings, human beings, you, uh, you know, Franklin beings, um, all of them, to equate Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad with Jesus Christ is a mark of utter spiritual blindness. And if you claim to be a Christian, don't you ever back down from that, no matter what. Uh, they were just men, and they were sinners at that. They were born sinners, and they died sinners. They were born in need of a Savior, and they died in need of a Savior. And we Christians, we never apologize for these facts. Jesus alone is the express image of God. That's what these men were getting. Will they ever really figure it out? Yes, they will. Hebrews chapter 1 the writer says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times passed to the fathers by the prophets. So the writer to Hebrews is saying, we have in our scripture, God speaking to the prophets. And the prophets, of course, speaking to the people. But he says, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. That's pretty intense. He's saying Jesus Christ made the world. He is saying that when we open our Bibles to the first verse and we read, in the beginning God created from nothing, 
the universe, the heavens and the earth. It's Jesus Christ doing it. Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The writer of the Hebrews continues, he says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. See, the Jehovah's Witness will have no excuse standing before God because this verse takes away their corrupted thinkings as well as the Mormons and anybody else who denies that Jesus is God the Son. In Jesus, we come to know God, not anybody else. We come to know about God. We come to know about Christ through the Christians, yes. But we do not look at a Christian and know God. Not like you do with Jesus Christ. The mind of Jesus is the mind of God, his Father. And no one else has come close. The character of Jesus is the character of God. It is sinless. It is perfect in every way. These other men who started those other Schools of thought and religions, they were, again, they were sinners and they were fallen. And so to look at Jesus Christ is to look at God. John's Gospel, chapter 1, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. We look at Christ, we see God. I take so much relief from that. Because never was there ever someone as pure and as merciful and loving at the same time. There were other opinions, though, than these voiced by the apostles. There were the scribes and the Pharisees who said that Christ was a deceiver. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, this is after the crucifixion. They speaking to Pilate, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Well, everyone is entitled to their opinion of Christ. They're just not entitled to be right unless it matches the revelation given to us in Scripture. It's basic Christianity. But I think we all need a dose of basic Christianity sometime. And this is it. Without this, you are not a Christian. Without understanding that Jesus Christ is perfect, is the Savior of the world, is God come in the flesh, how do you belong to Christ? Because anything short of that is to refuse the revelation of Jesus Christ, is to disagree with the Bible. Verse 29, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. So Christ here dismisses all those wrong opinions. All right, I hear it. Yeah, Jeremiah, Elijah, okay. Who do you say? He still does this. He still asks Anyone that comes in contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ must face this question, who do you say that he is? We're not allowed to speculate about his identity because it is revealed. That's why. It would be different if we had no record, no revelation, no statement, but we have it. And so to continue to speculate as to his, who he is is to reject in his face his own revelation. So we don't, we don't reject it. We receive it. He alone is the promised one, the Messiah Christ, the anointed, the chosen of God, the Messiah to Israel, the Savior of the world. Not that all in the world are saved, but they can be. So we listen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? What say you? What say you about the Christ with your life? How, how do you... How do you claim what you believe with your life? Or is it just talk? Is it just a philosophy with you? In our workplaces and classrooms, who do we say that Christ is by the way we carry ourselves? In our friendships, who do we say that Christ is? Are we unforgiving towards our friends? Are we selfish? Are we... Is it just about me and not really the other person? Or is it a mutual experience? What about in a marriage? How's that going in Christ? Who do you say that I am in your marriage? What say you? Is he indeed Lord of the home? Are you attempting to walk together? Because two can't, unless they are agreed. 
Are you savage with your spouse? Unforgiving, unloving, bitter? A lot of them are. You, uh, you will then create a condition by which even God can't help you. you know, Peter tells us, if you're pulling these stunts in your marriage, your, your prayers are blocked. God's not listening because you're playing him, as we would say. You're mocking him. How about in the church? Who do you say that I am? When you go to church, are you one that is trying to live out the gospel? Or are you trying to cover your flesh and pretend that you are? How about in the pit of hardship and suffering? When nothing is going your way, who do you say Christ is then? Is he still Lord of all? Or is he a failure to you? How about in the good times? When life's going very nicely. Who do you say that Christ is then? I think these are very important questions. I would hope every Christian would stand up and say, Amen! These questions must be asked. And the answers must be carried out in action as best we can. Will we fail sometimes at, at these? Of course. The true tr Christian, though, is determined. Determined to fix it. To repair it in some way, at some point. What say you that Christ is with your life? Are we able to treat someone like trash and then go kneel before the throne of God and thank him for all of his blessings in our life? After we've been a curse to somebody else? Are we too soggy with the self-willed, defiant spirit to hate our own flesh and sin? We Christians, we don't love our sin. We're bitter towards it. But there are those that have heard these kind of messages for so long, so often, they're no longer moved by it. And they will get up, and they will go home, and they'll make no effort to answer the question, Who do you say that I am with your life? This is why God has given the church preaching, because where else can you hear this? Maybe there's a person in your life that you just will not forgive. Well, you can't hear anything from them. Maybe there's someone else you don't respect. Maybe you don't like them because they don't agree with you on things that you want them to agree with you. So you can't hear from them. But then you come to a church. You're almost forced to sometimes because of public opinion. What will your children say? What will your parents say? What will others say if you don't go to church? So you go to church. And the Holy Spirit comes to say to you, you say, you say to me that I am the Christ. But you're so unloving towards those I need you to love. You're so hateful to those who have not hurt you. What am I supposed to do with you? Well, having already asked what others thought, he now asked his disciples the question, and he forces us to think. The question narrows everything down to me. He doesn't say, what does the person next to you think? What does your child think? What do you think? I'm talking straight to you, says the Holy Spirit. He's interested in what we think about him because he wants us in heaven, not hell. It's very simple. Not complex at all. That's the story of the Bible from cover to cover. God's saying to man, I want you with me in heaven. Not, I do not want to see you in hell. But you will have it your own way if you insist. So are there any here who care more about being liked by people than being liked by Christ? We talk about God loving us, but does he like you? Are you doing things that he says, you know, I love you, you're a sinner and I understand but the, the way you, you carry yourself, wounding everybody you come in touch with, makes it very difficult to like you. You younger, well, I don't know about that, but let's just start with the younger ones. You, you may be so preoccupied with what everybody else thinks, everybody your age, that is. <laughs> what about what Christ thinks? What about saying, look, I care what others think to a point? The point is, when they want me to depart with Christ, I don't care what they think. It takes guts to do that. It takes a backbone. 
We sell them here. They're for free. You come up and you tell the pastors at the end of service, I have this need. I am not standing up for Christ. I have no backbone. And they will pray with you. and God will give it to you. Or you can continue to do what you've been doing and not have it and continue to not have it. But when the question comes to you, who do you say that I am? Be honest. Peter answered, he tells us here in verse 29, and said to them, said to him, Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And all that is implied by that title, the anointed, the one, and no other. There are lesser anointed ones. King David was anointed. King Saul was anointed. As men go. This one is the anointed of God that all the prophets spoke of. And what Peter, what he said right here, is here to be read to the end of time by anybody that will come and read it. And then they have to react to it, either receive it or reject it. There's really no middle ground. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes it's instant. But the passion with which he had, you're the Christ. You cannot read Peter's words and not miss his enthusiasm. You cannot miss that this man is excited because... He has come in touch with truth, a truth that is undefiled. It's not marred by opinion. It is just straight out truth, a reality. Of course, they had seen Christ do things that flashed before them to say, He's not like any of us. Who can this be? Stops the weather. There's no one like Him. But now, now it's beginning to crystallize. Now it's beginning to be tied into what. God the Father has said through the prophets. Now they're clear. They're straight on this. It is a declaration that he is different than anybody else. Matthew 16, 17, Jesus said, This is why, Peter, you're getting this question right. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God the Father has given you the ability to see this. And that was true of Peter and the disciples with him. And that's true to this very day and has been true down through the ages. It is God taking away the blindness. But only to a heart that's willing to receive it. Matthew adds that this confession, this realization that Christ is indeed all that the prophets were speaking of and more is foundational to salvation. And so, of course, Matthew tells this story. He says, Peter, these are the keys. This is the foundation. This is the rock of our faith. This recognition of who I am. Without it, there's no foundation. There's no structure. You must have it. And we train our children from the very beginning to understand there's nobody like Christ. There is nobody like Christ. And when we get to heaven, oh man, that first sight of the one who is unlike anything we've ever seen. When Peter died, and Paul, when they got to heaven, they saw Christ like they never saw him before. But they were ready. They were prepped by the Spirit of God, and so will we. We see him now, but wait till we see him then. Verse 30 Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. It seems counter to to logic. Well, you're here to show us you're the Christ, but you don't want us to tell anybody. It's a strict command. It says he strictly warned them. Don't upset the rhythm of coming events, which are the processes of God, because people are that complicated. I cannot just go on a straight walk to the temple and declare that I am the Messiah. There's a reality that the curse in this world has caused everyone to have to address, even God himself. And so, well, of course, the Lord subjects himself to this. He doesn't have to, but he does. But there will be plenty of time for them to tell of this experience with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit when the Spirit comes at Pentecost. The gates swing open. They'll be able to tell everybody. But it it will be war, full-out war. It will not be easy. 
One of the logical reasons, or natural reasons, is because many of the Jews expected Messiah to be a political figure from God. And matters would have worsened. They tried, you know, they already tried once to make him king, and that brought problems. They were not ready for the revelation. But now verse 31, it's going to heat up now. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. How many prepositions are there? And he began, and be rejected. And the elders and the scribes and the chief priests and killed and after three days rise again. In other words, there's a lot more coming, men. There's a lot more that's going to happen. Okay, you have the revelation that I am the Christ. Well, that's not enough. We don't stop there. There's so much more that's going to take place. Of course, the title where he says, and began, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man, it links him to Daniel's revelation. The wisdom of the ages, the ancient one. This is him, Christ. And his mission as a suffering and dying Messiah, it clashed with the expectations of those who read their Bibles, studied their Bibles, their Old Testament Bibles, and still missed the point. What a warning to us. What a warning to us to not become puffed up with knowledge. I know the Bible. I can quote two verses from it. Uh, you know, maybe you can quote it all. It's not enough by itself. I give my body to be burned and I have not love. What say you? You say Christ is the Lord? Well, I love everybody except those in my family. What kind of nonsense is that? You need a spiritual slapping. I don't mean a physical. I mean, I, we wouldn't endorse that. Well, there are some people that <laughs> maybe we need to adjust that. Peter's going to object to this. After having this great confession of the Father, he's going to object. A suffering Messiah clashed with the heroic Messiah, and that could not be accepted. There was more to it with Peter. Most of the Jews had this opinion. The Messiah would come, he would vanquish Rome, and he is going to do that in his second coming. The Jews even thought there were two different messiahs, one to su suffer and one not to suffer. We understand they're wrapped into the same phases of the same ministry. And he, continuing in verse 31, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes. In Jesus' day, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish Supreme Court. They played an essential role mediating between Rome and the people of Israel. And so on a civil level, they were very important. On a spiritual level, they were very corrupt. Not every single one of them, as the Scripture will name at least two of them, that were very noble, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. But it took them time, too. They did not just see Jesus and his miracles and hear his teachings and snap right into line with him. It took a little work. The scribes were like uh, court clerks, or you could say those... Uh, lawyers that research the material and bring it to the Sanhedrin said, we have grounds to do this to, to Christ. All of this was under the authority of the Father. Acts chapter 2, Peter made this clear. He said, I don't want you guys to think for one moment that you just stepped out and murdered Christ. There's a lot more to the story. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. God let you do what you was going to do. But it was part of God's plan. No victory for you. It was a defeat for you. And many of them became saved at Peter's preaching. But they still had to work through so much, and Paul spent his life trying to help them get through it. May we not be Christians like that. May we not be self-righteous and judgmental and caught up on legalism and good works, but let us do good works. And let us have grace. And let's have an attractive faith. The church is supposed to be the bride of Christ. I've done enough weddings to notice that I'm, and I mean this, so it's a good opportunity here to make a joke, but I, I don't have the ammo. I've not seen an ugly bride. Why is the church sometimes ugly even to Christians? 
Why is she not attractive? Because of the people. Okay, I can say that very easily, but then I have to then ask the question to myself. Am I uglying up the bride? I hope not. We have a lot of servants in this church that work hard to keep the bride looking as attractive as she can, as far as the structure of the building goes. And then we have a lot of servants who try not to break into cliques and gossip and badmouth and bicker behind the scenes to keep the, to keep the bride beautiful. It says, and he will be killed. Jesus said, they're going to kill me. I'm not going to die natural causes. The religious authorities of our beloved Israel are going to kill me flat out. He says it. John chapter 3, he had been saying it all along. He had been going over their heads. But he says going not all the way into their heads even now. But in John 3, and Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's saying, I'm going to be crucified. And then I will draw everyone to me. Those, of course, who want to come. How could Messiah act as Messiah in restoring the kingdom of God to Israel's authority and be rejected and killed at the same time? So they didn't understand this because they had been taught for so long, this is how it's going to happen. But Christ comes along and says, no, this is how it's going to happen. I have a quote I'm going to get to by uh, one saint in a little bit concerning this very thing of having a problem with how God does something. It's not a little thing. I, I've had many problems with how God does a thing, but at the end, I'm submitted. After three days, Christ then says, he will rise again. The two go together. But the disciples had blacked out at this point. They didn't hear him or did not register. All they heard is their beloved Lord was going to be killed. How could that be? He was he dominated every situation that confronted them. He dominated without even breaking a sweat. How could he be killed by the Sanhedrin? He even put them in their place. There was nothing they could do about it. He healed people in their face on the Sabbath, and there was nothing they could do about it. No one else could do these things but him. But they did not trust his word because they did not listen to all of what he is saying. How guilty of that can we Christians be? Where we take a part of the scripture, but we forget the other parts. That's why Paul said this, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You're just taking the letter. You just become a clod with the word of God in your hand. But if you have the spirit of God with the letter, not without it, then you become a tool in the hand of God. So Peter's blunder was his partial attention to what Jesus said. He wasn't listening. He didn't hear the promise. And Satan, of course, is going to take advantage of this. The promise, had he held to the promise, and he will rise in three days, he would have been able to shove back Satan. But he wasn't, verse 32. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is laughable almost, right? Christ says right out, they're going to kill me. And then Peter says, Lord, let me just talk to you about this. Peter thought he was shielding the Lord from embarrassment. I don't want the other guys to hear me set you straight. Because you've been, you've been, you know, that whole walking on the water scene. Okay, you got that one. But I got this one. It's so dumb of us to think that we could, that he's somehow not as much Lord on some things. He is Lord overall or he's not Lord at all. So Peter takes him aside from the others. And he says, don't even think such a thing as this. Peter is filled with human love. That's the problem. It's just, it's not agape, working, functioning, dominating the moment of his heart. He should have just shut his mouth and said, Lord, your will be done. What do you want us to do? He does not. He seeks to advise him to avoid the cross. Well, what would have happened if Christ avoided the cross? Well, we would have all gone to hell. There'd be no savior. There'd be no salvation. But Peter is not that far advanced. And we only are because he asked dumb questions like this. We get to look at it and avoid asking them ourselves. Because I'm, if we were there, we would probably say the same 
the others probably would have said it, but Peter was just faster on the draw. Verse 33, but when he turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. The Lord turns his back to Peter, but not on Peter. Big distinction there. He deliberately turns away from Peter and faces the disciples. It looks awkward on the surface. He turned his back to the one who was under the influence of Satan. But he also did not want for one moment to have Peter suppose that he was really calling Peter Satan. He was moving beyond Peter to the influence behind this foolish suggestion. The disciples had no idea Satan was even there. That Jesus could see into the dark. They could see into the spiritual realm. They had even less of an idea that Peter was being used as a tool for Satan. After such a glorious confection, you are the Christ. Flesh and blood didn't tell you that, Peter. Your father in heaven tell you that. Well, this time, flesh and blood is not telling you this, Peter. Satan in hell is telling you this. And so he turns his back to Peter, and he looks at his disciples. And he said, this is not getting a pass. This will be dealt with right here, and it will be thoroughly dealt with. The moment is intensified. The Lord has introduced the S word, Satan. The enemy of God. The opposition to God. Our Lord knew exactly where he was. He could see him moving behind the scenes. No one else could see that. And so he exposes him. And in so doing, he silences him. Saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. How intense is this? Can you imagine the faces on the the other disciples? And Peter. Peter's looking at the back of the Lord. He's not seeing his face. He already got a glimpse of that right before he turned away. And so he's shutting his mouth. There's no objection coming. It was a thought right out of hell. Straight out of hell. It happens. It happens to us. Sometimes you know it. You know that was out of hell. It's an impure thought, perhaps. Other times you're not so quick to catch it till it's done some damage. Satan is pinpointed as the sneak influence in our thinking against God, under the guise of love. How many times have we seen, you're so unloving. If I was unloving, I'd be slapping you upside your head right now. But I'm not. Satan, the sneak influence against the truth of God. So we say, well, how do we know when it's Satan? Because it disagrees with what the Scriptures taught. That's how. That's how you're going to know Antichrist, world that is left behind. Not the church, we won't be here. The apostate church will be. They will know Antichrist because he will not be agreeing with Jesus Christ. And they'll have the scriptures and my recorded sermons uh, to, to reference. <laughs> and everybody else that has preached the word. Satan used love to do it, to go around prophecy. Satan used human love to go around Scripture. He still does this because it works. He exploits man's methods before God. That's why the Lord is going to say, said to him, you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. You're mindful of man things because you hate men anyway. And if you can keep them contrary to God, you get what you want. Their destruction. Peter loved Jesus so much. The thought of him being murdered was just unacceptable. But the thought of him disagreeing with Christ was more unacceptable. And he didn't catch it yet, but he catches it now because the Lord throws it at him. He loved Jesus, but not his methods. G. Campbell Morgan, writing on this verse, said, The man who loves Jesus, but who shuns God's methods, is a stumbling block to him. Those British guys could just articulate thoughts so well. It's so true. If you don't like how God is doing something, you become part of the problem. If you act upon that, if you don't get past it, 
If you have to submit, that's the whole story of Ananias, you know, go, go baptize Paul. You know, well, he's killing people. Lord, well, did God, Ananias, does God need you to tell him that really? But as human, and God lets him be human. It's a natural thing to do. I said, God, this guy. And then when he said, go, because he's a chosen vessel of mine. And he's gone and goes and does what he has to do. And then he so gets into it. He says, Paul, what are you waiting for? Get baptized. Here's what Peter missed from his own scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We don't have time to go into more meaning of that. But the chastisement for our peace. Romans 5. The peace with God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So after hearing the voice of the Father, then came the voice of the devil. How many, how many, how many preached the gospel and then in the next breath attacked people as though Satan was their Lord? Happens even to churchgoers. What's going to happen if you sit here through this sermon and the Holy Spirit says, I'm talking to you on this one? If it's a correction, let's just say. What's going to happen when you get up out of the pew and you head to the parking lot? You get in your car. Is there going to be any difference? Are you going to think about it? Are you going to pray about it? Are you going to come up to the passage and say, I am not loving. I am unloving. I am bitter. I am self-righteous. I am self-willed. I am defiant in Jesus' name, and I want it to stop. And you say, well, I did this five years ago. Well, do it again. And don't stop doing it. How quick, even in the church... The one who loves Jesus can be used by Satan. That's the lesson here. Verse 34. I could go on. Well, I am. To thirst, verse, 30, third, verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, he's moved past the Peter thing. However, it seems to have given him an outline for his next sermon which is not uncommon. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he is, Peter, of course, was not denying himself. He was asserting himself in the presence of God. And not being too hard on Peter, because how can you not love this man? <clears throat> Evidently, the multitude followed the twelve and Christ, and they, he has now called them to him. And he is speaking to them about leaving the natural life and things in a second position in this life. He says, whoever desires to come after me. Well, following Christ demands desire. You're not, he's not going to drag you with him. He's not going to force you. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride. That would be the message of the church. Say, come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. I'm sure the Calvinists can find a way around that, but uh, we're not going to bring them up. I said, Pastor, we don't want to hear about the Calvinists. Oh, I was too late. I already mentioned it. Sorry. He will not force anyone to love him. There are no benefits to the one that rejects Jesus. The benefits of the cross and resurrection of Christ, they... They do not benefit those who will not come. He says, let him deny himself. That is refuse self-will. And that means, or let me put it this way, it is to refuse self-rule. Had Peter not submitted, we would have had an example of self-rule. We have to wait to see it in Judas Iscariot. Go out and betray the Lord because Satan filled his heart. There is really no true self-will. You're either going to be under the authority of Christ or you're going to be under the authority of Satan. You've got to serve somebody. So if you find what God wants from your life, you are submitting. The Jesus-centered life looks to the Lord to know how to behave, to know how to think and believe, and not allowing the comfort of self-rule, false comfort. He says, and take up your cross, and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, the disciples will take up their cross. Paul put it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In a life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. 
He denied himself, and he endured the hardships that Ananias had told him he was going to suffer because Paul knew it was worth it. And it's so you filter everything through. When you deny yourself, you filter everything through Christ. What does the Lord think? I, I have discovered in my Christian life that on this cross that I struggle to get off of every chance I can uh, get off of it, I have discovered, just like the cross of Christ, I have my Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani moments. I have my moments when I say, God, why are you forsaking me? Where are you? Why aren't you doing more? They're not as intense, or certainly not on the level of Christ. There's much more to his uh, statement of, of his word in, in that regard. But still there is the connection that to be stuck in the flesh is to have to uh, have the spirit force it down. Christianity is a force. It's not just an arrival at salvation. It is a full-blown struggle. Uh, otherwise, there'd be no required to submit and surrender. Uh, these things take effort. Verse 35, for whoever, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Paul said to Timothy, you're, you know, you were trained in the gospel since a little child by your mom and your grandmother. You know the gospel. And you know that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And the next words out of Paul's mouth to Timothy, therefore, because you claim this sound mind, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. He says, Timothy, you've got the knowledge, you have the calling. You have the faith. Now let's use it. And it's going to bring shame. But don't worry about that. It's the world's shame. That's not shame before God. Because he will not be ashamed of you for this. Well, we've got to move forward. Uh, so much more to say about this verse. But it speaks for itself. You read it once. You never forget it. You may lose sight of it. But you can quickly come back into uh, the place where... It wants you to be the truths of it. Verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Okay, question. What's worth going to hell for? That's a very simple question. And he says, oh, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He's quoting Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9 here. But yeah, what, what, you know, what, what fun will you have uh, to go to hell for? It's a question that should be put on the portal of every university in the world. Verse 38. <clears throat> Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. In this adulterous and sinful generation of him. The son of man. Also will be ashamed. When he comes in the glory of his father. With the holy angels. You see this belongs to Christ. Now he's coming as victor. Now he is coming to establish rule. But it not just yet. And it still has not happened yet. But it will happen. So he's warning them not to be ashamed of the faith. I'm going to open this up just a little bit. <clears throat> Paul said it this way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I have no shame when it comes to preaching the gospel. I am shameless. You, the world wants to be shameless with sin. They want to take the shame out of sin. They want to make it acceptable, give it a different name. But not the gospel. The gospel becomes profane to the world, or it is profane to the world. This adulteress that's unfaithful to God, not fully involved with God, but with the, themselves. So, what our faith forbids, the world demands we do. And if we don't do it, we are to suffer shame. And being angry towards us, they move forward. They are angry at us because we will not celebrate sin with them. We are fighting sin. We're not saying we're sinless. We say, we hate our sin. You love your sin. And this is a distinction. And the two cannot be reconciled. They are angry with us because we like God more than them. And they hate it. The world philosophy is you are not allowed to go outside the box and love up. You can only love over. 
We love God, we hate sin, we serve people, and we use things. That's how we do business. We love God, we hate sin. We serve people, and we use things. And the cross of Christ is, uh, interferes and it interrupts with the world and their Tower of Babel and their plans. And we're not supposed to hate them for it, we're supposed to reach them. And Jesus is not ashamed of the sinner who's not ashamed to stand up and say, I side with Christ over anything else. Let's pray. Our Father, where would we be without these words? What would happen to us without the cross of Christ? What would happen if we did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead? We thank you for teaching us this through your word. If you have been listening either here in the church or online and you've not opened your heart to Christ to receive him as the one who died as you on the cross to take your punishment for you so that when you die you would be saved from judgment for breaking the commandments of Jesus Christ. If you've not done this you have a chance right now You just have to open your heart and come to him. You have to admit that you are a sinner. And you have to confess that he alone is the Savior. There is nowhere else to go for salvation. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. I come to you and none other. And I ask not only would you save me from judgment to come but also that you would be Lord over my life right now in this world, in this life, and beyond. I give my life to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of the confession, but may they step forward. Meet with one of the pastors when the invitation is given. Make their confession known. These things we we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.